Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to Petro Nerds Podcast, episode 21, where Princess Trisha will fly around the world telling you guys about what's going on and driving the oil market. So we're going to talk about three things today. Number one, the global oil macro focused on OPEC plus. Number two, U.S. activity. Number three, we'll talk about the Biden administration order on uh, imports from Xinjiang and solar. So to kick it off, OPEC plus is having a little internal strife. What do you think, Tricia? Absolutely. Well, so we should say it's July 9th. Um, 2021. So lots have happened between sort of July 1st and this this supposed OPEC meeting we were supposed to have. So we were supposed to have an OPEC meeting last week. It got kicked out. Everybody saw that. Like, I love your responses, but I am kind of annoyed that the the answer to the market is like, because there's no there's no uh, response by OPEC there. So there basically wasn't a meeting. It essentially got called off because Saudi Arabia and the, and the United Arab Emirates uh, known as the UAE, could not agree on on a, some things. And I'll, I'll explain what those things were. But essentially, they were pretty basic. It was that, um, you know, the Saudi uh, the Saudi oil minister has, uh, if you saw his interview on CNBC, it's 20 minutes, you can pull it up. And I thought CNBC gave him a lot of leeway and a lot of leverage in this, uh, explaining that they were right. And the Saudis are basically saying, hey, you know, we... Uh, agreed to this agreement in April of 2020. And, you know, the United Arab Emirates agreed to it. And basically what they're referencing is the baseline production. So what they agreed to this baseline production. And if you remember in April 2020, when oil prices went negative, everybody and their dog was producing as much crude oil as possible. So they did that as partly like, and there was a reference to some of those production volumes to their baseline. So the Saudis have, I think their baseline for regular OPEC is like, it's nine, it's nearly 10 million barrels a day for production. And um, but what happened was when they actually agreed to this baseline production in April 2020, um, the UAE took a pretty big cut. And so now the Saudis and everyone are saying, well, you agreed to this. And the UAE is saying, OK, well, we did agree to it. But here's the kicker. Before that meeting actually happened, the, the talks on the sidelines were, OK, we're going to extend. We're going to increase output. We're going to increase it 400,000 barrels a day each month through the end of 2020. Uh, 21. And then we're going to keep these cuts in place. So it's about 5.7, 5.8 million barrels a day of cuts that we still have in place. And they want to maintain these cuts um, through, you know, the original agreement was through April 2022. But they wanted to, Saudis were saying, hey, we, let's extend this through December of 2022. And that's where they lost the United Arab Emirates. The UAE basically just said, nope, we're not, we're not agreeing to that. We're not going to extend it. And if you rewind a little bit and you've paid attention to what the United Arab Emirates is trying to do, they've been wanting to increase output for a while. I mean, they'd have multi-billion dollar plans to raise production. You know, they can basically produce around 4 million barrels per day, but they want to raise production to 5 million barrels per day by 2030. So this is definitely a, you know, something that's that's putting the energy transition into a square focus and like how are they how do you proceed from this point onward how do you get all the goodie that you can out of the last hurrah and probably this oil price move and the the united arab emirates wants to increase output and they they see that they want to pull this forward and make the money now where they can and so they don't like where their um where their baseline was and they're not going to agree to it now the market responded by prices going up and i think part of that is because of moves in the dollar. But the other part of that is that 
there is no agreement right now. So they'll basically come to the table in theory because they didn't agree to that. I mean, they got the month to month agreement, which we assume is real, but you can't ask the Saudi oil minister or the, the UAE oil minister directly, like, are you agreeing to this? You know, people could use this as an opportunity. OPEC countries and OPEC plus countries could use this as an opportunity to eke production out a little higher. So personally, I think the response of prices going higher is not exactly warranted. Uh, what do you think? I'm going to pull up these numbers. So I'd like to get your input on that. Yeah. So prices initially, I mean, have slipped backwards from high 70s to close to 70. And then yes. we'll, we'll talk about the the driver for the last 24 hours in terms of pricing, which was um, better, you know, a, a healthy draw in U.S. inventories, which is pretty constructive. You know, I, I, I'm interested in what you think the inside baseball is, because I know you talk to lots of OPEC members and people that are on the other side of the pond. And I mean, the question really is, how do you herd all those cats? And what is the, the real post-Saudi-Russia price war uh, regime, if you will, of OPEC? I mean, I think that the I think there's a lot of moving parts here and people have simplified it down to, oh, it's just about these baseline things. I think it's an opportunity for sure for the UAE to assert themselves. They They don't want to maintain i mean the saudis have had aggressive cuts in place that they've they've done themselves and that's where they can use that and say oh hey we we had this extra 1 million barrel a day cut um but the uae is saying you took us at a pretty damn low baseline and you were producing 11 million barrels per day you know at the height of you know in april at the height of the the, the covid everything so i think the inside baseball stuff if you're reading the middle east economic survey mees you're seeing that there are deeper, and, and actually, if you did just a little bit of research when this came out, there are deeper issues between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And immediately following this, the the UAE had ba- or Saudi had basically had a, a a pretty open tariff regime with the UAE, which they reimposed those tariffs. So now there's tariffs in place on the UAE on the UAE for trading. They also um, flights, I believe, have been canceled back and forth to a degree, where they're saying, hey, the Delta variant is is uh, the surge in coronavirus cases, and the Delta variant is the their reasoning or excuse behind this, but they've stopped flight. So there's a lot of um, things like that. There was a lot of trash talking, I think, on Twitter. And as of late, it seems like everyone's sort of calmed down. Um, and there is some diplomatic talking behind the scenes of trying to make this work. Suppose I think the, the White House press secretary has commented that they've been having high level talks with these folks and they would like you know, they would like stable energy prices or, or something to that degree. Uh, I don't think that at least the Saudi oil minister, when he was interviewed on CNBC a couple of days ago, he had said that he wasn't allowed to talk about things he wasn't allowed to talk about, but that he had not spoken directly with, uh, it sounded like he had not spoken directly with the White House. So I don't think the White House has probably been too aggressive. And the fact that oil prices dropped down a little bit, um, probably on the back of a higher dollar, it, it quelled those nerves a little bit. But I do think this is a the the market seems um a little naive uh understand like this this seems some this doesn't seem like a big deal now but it could easily become a really big deal because all it takes is a couple folks i mean russia basically you have to assume that you know the uae can't increase output significantly right so that would make people calmer and i think the fact that the iran sanctions you know the fact that we're continuing those talks. They don't, they do seem to be stalling. And there's a lot of, there seems to be increasing pessimism on that. That has folks on the bullish oil side feeling pretty comfortable. They don't think those barrels are going to be brought. I'm not nearly as comfortable about that. Iran was able to add, you know, a million barrels a day back pretty quickly in the heart of all these sanctions. So personally, I think regardless of sanctions, yes, it will be harder 
they're financially constrained, it's going to be more difficult. But I think that Iran is going to push forward um, in their ties with with China, at least at the very least, getting more more cash and trying to build up their production and send that directly to directly to China and, and maybe India, if possible, in other countries. So I, I think the market is um, is a little bit uh, is not appreciating the risks um, to the downside in price should these you know five million barrels a day and change you know, slowly come back to the market. And that's what this agreement, obviously it's OPEC plus agreement, is to bring these barrels slowly back. But really that, that what the Saudis are saying with their OPEC plus, you know, extension is maintaining the cuts for an extended period of time. And we've talked about this before, but I, I think listeners really need to understand that you have Saudi Arabia artificially con- restraining their own output. And I just want to remind folks, and, and I, you know, I was talking to um, Marshall Atkins, who's the head of uh, energy with, with Raymond James yesterday, and we were discussing this, but Saudi Arabia's production in April, and I'm looking at an April slide deck I did of 2020, their production was almost 11.6 million barrels per day, you know, between 11.6 and 12 million barrels per day in April of last year. And people say, well, that was only that was only for one month. Well, they've never, when have they really needed to have, when have we really needed, you know, Russia and Saudi, you know, to produce 11 or 12 million barrels per day? We haven't really needed it in, in recent history. So saying that they haven't produced it is not a, a great, you know, over an extended period of time is different. Like, could they? Personally, I think they could. I think, yes, they were doing a lot of things to add barrels to the market to, to create a price, you know, to create this price war. But the reality is, is that we went from 11.6 million barrels per day of production down to eight, you know, eight million barrels a day production. Um, and, you know, eight and a half, right around eight and a half million barrels a day right now, probably pushing, I think, June, according to Middle East Economic Survey, June production for Saudi Arabia was about 8.9 million barrels per day. So they did add a significant amount back. But that's still it's it's July of 2021, and we're talking about Saudi Arabia at 8.9 million barrels a day of production. So that's still artificially withholding barrels off, at least by roughly a million barrels a day of where they're sort of where they're normally at. And and I think that comes from the differing fiscal break evens because I want to say UAE fiscal break even is 60 bucks, whereas the Saudis, and again we're not talking about lifting costs, we're talking about break even for their economy is more like 78 or so. So in, in a way, I think UAE is solving for volume because they're in the money and the Saudis are still not quite at break even on their total economy and therefore want higher prices. So, Well, it, it's not a small amount. So, I mean, the, you don't hear a lot of the numbers. You have to go back. You have to go back to the old OPEC numbers. Like, so if you're looking at you have to see what what were these countries producing in April of last year? What are they producing now and why is there a rift? And I think that's important. And I actually was just telling Ethan before we got on logged on, I was struggling because I kept downloading the June OPEC report. And when you download the June OPEC report, lo and behold, the May OPEC report is what comes up. So they're not even showing us their numbers. But if we look back and look at, if we look back and see what was the numbers from secondary sources that the OPEC bulletin showed in April of last year, it was actually, so Saudi Arabia was for 2018, for 2018 production was 10.3 10.3 million barrels per day. For 2019, it was 9.7 million barrels per day. So just like your baseline pre-COVID. And then in February of, so February, they were producing 9 point, of 2020, 9.7 million barrels a day for Saudi Arabia. March, 9 point, uh, almost 10 million barrels a day in Saudi Arabia of 2020. And then April, 11.55 million barrels per day. And if we look at what the UAE was doing, doing over the course of this time, you know, in 2018, they were producing about 3 million barrels per day. Same thing in 2019. And then we fast forward to 20, they're producing oh, well over 3 million barrels, 3.65 million barrels per day in February 2020, March, 3.5 million barrels per day, and a whopping in April, 
uh, UAE was producing um, 3.8 million barrels per day. So their whole goal was they were around 4 million barrels per day and they want to reach 5 million barrels per day by 2030. So this whole baseline thing has them, basically they're cut several hundred, several hundred thousand, it's almost 600,000 barrels per day. So it's meaningful. You think about 300,000, even a few hundred thousand barrels a day output at, at a $75 price tag. That's a lot of money um, that you're, you know, that's a lot of money that you're leaving on the table. And I think some of these countries are getting to the point, you know, we're not probably hearing about the other stuff, the the other countries that, you know, the, the fears are, you know, and Saudi, Saudi Arabia is doing a great job of downplaying this. They're basically saying this is a non-issue. And, and it's a, it is an issue because if, if the UAE does break, and I don't think they necessarily will, but there's more talk of that than there has been. But if they do break away and say, we don't accept this or, you know, and they're not, they're basically saying they'll comply with the cuts through April of 2022. And they still don't, they just say the baseline is bad. We agree to it. We'll comply with that baseline in these cuts through April, 2022, but we're not going to extend it. And so I think there must have been some stuff behind the scenes of where, you know, they they basically said, no, we're not extending this and you need to revise our baselines. And and the Saudis are playing this card of you agree to that baseline. This is in the agreement. We can't revise the agreement. Oh, and by the way, we got to extend this to December. So, no, I don't think the Saudis are right. They're asking for the extension to December, which is artificially withholding a lot of barrels off the market. And the UAE now has a reason to say, no, we're not going to extend it. And we're pretty pissed about our baseline. And that's not going to be UAE is not going to be the only country that's going to start saying things like that. Um, because Iraq has been producing, they're over, they're now producing about 4 million barrels per day. And they need to, because if you followed anything in Iraq, they have some massive power outage. They have some power issues. They're trying to get more of using their uh, natural gas, which is their associated natural gas from their crude oil for power. They're going to need to increase their output for crude oil in order to get that gas. Um, so they've got some power issues that are incentivizing them to increase their crude oil output. And so they're above 4 million barrels per day right now, which means folks are allowed, you know, that's above their what they were allocated. And so we're we're getting to the point where not everyone's just going to sit back and say, this is no big deal. Just let these guys produce. And UAE is the country that's, that's sitting out. And I mean, it obviously caused enough of a rift that we don't have, we didn't actually have a meeting. Okay. All, all that said, and that was quite a lot as usual. What, what about the balance of the year and activity in oil prices? Do you, do you think that we'll see some cheating? We'll see more production. Let's just say the baseline is what we get with UAE and we don't extend those cuts. What do you expect to happen? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I want to caution people to realize that, you know, I think a lot of folks are, I hear a lot of different numbers from a lot of different entities of people that are very confident that their back of the envelope numbers on inventory draws, not for us, but globally are correct. And that, you know, the International Energy Agency, you know, they have inventory draws and people say those aren't correct. And they're probably not correct. But it's always a hindsight thing. We don't have the same transparency and the same color on inventory draws and on actual demand as we do in the U.S. Like, we have it in the U.S. We have a pretty good idea of our, of our Cushing draws. We know that. And it moves price. We don't have that same color abroad. And so when prices move, we have to realize that traders are doing, you know, traders may want to bring this up. And, you know, I, I've said it once, I'll say it a million times. If you're following, if you're listening to these late night traders and stuff on, on, on the market, you'll hear the same thing as like, well, you know, if, the, if we really want to take prices higher, we probably can. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, dollar moves, uh, upside or downside are going to impact oil prices to a degree, but it depends on how much traders are, are buying in or, you know, are buying to the bull story or the, 
you know, the bear story. And I, I think demand overwhelmingly, even with this Delta variant, uh, with the coronavirus surging, you know, demand looks really good. But partly the reason why people believe demand looks really good is because they're looking at the U.S. because we have the demand data and it does look very good. I mean, we have, you know, I was quoted in a, in a Bloom, recent Bloomberg article and I mean, demand growth is we saw massive, you know, growth in, in over 4th of July and it sort of is bucking this price trend, you know, prices are going up for gasoline and yet people are buying. And that's a kind of a different, unique inflection point because we also have a massive amount of people on unemployment benefits, which I, I do believe is why we saw an uptick in unemployment in this past week is because we still have these unemployment benefits and there's a lot of incentive for people to be on unemployment benefits. They're going to be driving around. They're going to be vacationing all summer until September when those unemployment benefits stop and hopefully they don't extend those and then people will go back to work and things will sort of temper out. But I do think people are are looking at the U.S. market and sort of extrapolating it forward. And it's probably indicative of a demand is going up, but it's not the same everywhere. And that's creating a more a more bullish case, in addition to the fact that OPEC is withholding. You have production being withheld um, that would have been, you know, pre-COVID would have been on the market. So my it can it can spike. But I don't think it's re- I don't think it can stay there. You know, we talked about hundred dollar oil on the last podcast, and you know the ability, the the more people I talk to, very you know high level people, really believe the oil price is going to go to hundred. And but when you ask like, is it going to stay there? They don't think it's going. You know, that's the price spike. And then I think I personally think if it goes that high, it's going to fall. Okay, how about we move to the U.S. now? Yes, we're already talking about the U.S. So I think we can. I think we yeah. can. Yeah. So U.S. So U.S. data, we just saw today, and again, it's July 9th, 2021. We saw the draw today of 7 million barrels from EIA, EIA's weekly petroleum inventory report. Last rig count was up four, and the U.S. frac spread count was up two. So, and that's up 160 year on year. So we are seeing some, you know, incremental upticks in the rig count and the frac spread count, but it's not crazy. You know, it's not, it's not going great guns. So I no, think well, there's, well, there's still that, prudence, at least on the part of the public operators. There, there is. And I think that's the other thing that sort of, you have OPEC and everyone leaning into is like, they're, they're bullish stories when, it, when you hear the oil ministers talk is, hey, U.S. production is going to be flat because the majors are, are restraining CapEx and, the, and Iran isn't necessarily going to come back because of the sanctions with the U.S. You have those two big themes and, and those are wild cards because I do think, you know, if, if we see the rig count is up, obviously with, with Baker Hughes today, it's Friday, uh, that's obviously going to be higher for, you know, it's, it's higher with inverse rig count is much higher. We see incremental rig count and ads everywhere. You can't have the rig count keep going up and the frac count slowly going up and not eventually have production. And, you know, EAA monthly production, we're still around 11 million barrels per day as of, you know, and it's, it's lags by two months. So May production, we're still around 11 million barrels per day. But if you look at New Mexico, it's up, you know, it's not like we're, we're losing steam necessarily. And, you know, I have broke, I was staring at the data and looking at, you know, the, the fraction of wells that we added in 2020 uh, was was a fraction that we added it from 19 2019, but we still had productivity gains. Every on average, every single well is you know on average is outperforming 2019 by a little bit, but it's enough that it's meaningful. And so I think when people look at that, you know those we talked about in the last podcast of of that rig breakdown, and over half the rigs are private companies. And you, I think you're going to continue to see an acceleration in the recount by private companies. And will that move the needle, you know, on, on dramatic production build out? Not necessarily. 
but it's, we're going to creep up. It's not going to, we're not going to decline production for sure. So no one, I mean, you, you, we're not going to come down from this point. We're going to continue to creep up. And these price levels, everybody says, well, you know, they're going to, these guys are going to maintain their CapEx. I don't know. I mean, I think one of the biggest risks to outlook in, in oil for the U.S. is the regulatory side. I mean, in per, you know, the the regulatory burdens of the of the Biden administration, the, those executive orders that are, you know, getting into the uh, financial side and in, into the financial space and, you know, into the SEC, those are going to be problematic. And those may restrain Chevron companies like Chevron and Exxon from increasing output. But I can't imagine you're sitting, even if you're public, I mean, if you're Diamondback and you're EOG and you're Pioneer, oh my goodness, do you, you're looking at these prices and you have to say, oh, five to 10% increase in output. Like, that's not very much. We can probably do it. And holy crap, would we be making a crap ton of money? So, and you should be. I mean, and you have to think too, like, but that's the mentality everyone's going to think. And those private guys, they're, they, every private company should be drilling their ass off, completing these wells and bringing that production online. Like this may be the, so like prices are good. You are making money right now. Go do it. And you haven't yet seen the dramatic cost inflation on the service sector side. But it should be coming at some point though, right? It should be. I mean, and I think it is. I think it probably is. I think they're, they're seeing it. Um, but I mean, it's just... It, it's not, I don't think it's not massively apparent yet. And I do think we, we've talked, we talked on the last podcast, we're definitely going to have someone from, uh, we'll have Chris Wright on this podcast, but we're going to have someone from Liberty Oilfield Services as well talking about, you know, the inside baseball on, on the frack side. But I don't know how you can have, it feels a lot to me like 2014 when I was studying the oil, you know, everything was collapsing and everyone kept telling me on the outside, hey, you know, people aren't, they're going to stop spending. The U.S. isn't going to come back. It's going to be a mess. And that's not what happened. They kept going, they learned a lot and they got more efficient. And I, that's what I feel like if you're on the ground and you're looking at this, you're not drilling crap wells. You know, they're not drilling a really crappy well and say, no, it's no big deal. My boss doesn't care. They absolutely care. So the wells that are getting drilled are, are, you know, smidgen better than they were before, which means you can't have that many rigs and production isn't going to start to incrementally add up. Yes, we have lots of big base declines and stuff, but I will also say the optimism in North Dakota is huge. I mean, pick up the phone, talk to some folks in North Dakota. They're raring to go because it's, you know, prices are over $70 a barrel. You know, the discounts on transportation are not that bad right now. And, and really was a huge signal to the market when, you know, Dapple is not getting emptied. It, that was a nice little signal along with $70 oil to say you can get back to business. Now, is it going to like grow like crazy and grow bananas? Not necessarily. It's not going to go crazy, but you're not going to, you're going to be able to send these declines a lot easier than I think people realize. So it's not only, Oil that's at a pretty nice price, but gas has bounced back. Yes. We've also got some of the liquids like propane having a nice run here. Do you think all of these are basically demand recovery from COVID or is it a, a function of just lower CapEx now? Uh, um, you're saying demand recovery from COVID for, from the gas side? Yeah. For, I mean, from the whole supply chain, really. I mean, look, I think on, I think on, from a natural gas perspective, I think is where our production is, is almost at pre-COVID levels, right? But we didn't, we haven't had seen the, obviously the growth. Um, our production is nearly pre-COVID levels, but we do have this, you know, as you know, this gas is not a, doesn't move around the world like oil. It's not, you don't have nearly the volumes of, of gas on the, on water, on transportation. And so it is chunkier. It is more piecemeal. It's messy. And so you can inherently see price spikes, especially in the summer when we have, you know, high demand because it's really hot or in the winter when it's really cold, you see these regional 
you, these regional pinpoints. And I think a lot of times we think that, you know, liquefied natural gas is, is this very transparent, large market. And really it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty neat. It's pretty new. Um, so of this, of moving this stuff around the water. And I think that's great in, in, in addition to COVID bottlenecks and transportation bottlenecks and higher transportation costs, it creates some of this chunkiness, um, that I wouldn't, I love, I, I've said it a million times, I love natural gas. And I, I think that, you know, there's a bullish case for not necessarily $5 natural gas in the US, but there's a bullish case for the market for natural gas and for, you know, producing it cheaply in the US and for, you know, for making money with this. I don't, I wouldn't bank on $5, you know, for even $4 nat gas in the US because when prices are that high, production comes with it. And this is a smaller molecule. It's easier to get out of the ground. And I think we're going to see some very big moves in places like the Haynesville. Yeah, and we are up. Just looking at this tape on natural gas is extraordinary. We're two dollars an MCF higher than we were last year. So we have natural gas prices at three dollars and seventy cents per mm BTU um, as a fifty-two week high and a buck sixty-four at a fifty-two week low. So the recovery in gas has been remarkable, and you have to think that the bulk of U.S. dry gas puds are now in the money. Absolutely, and I think you have to you. You have to realize that the production will come with it. You can't incentivize these guys. You can't throw this dangle the, these prices in front of them. Also, if they can hedge this, uh, the, and natural gas guys have been a little bit better at like hedging, locking in these prices than going to town. So just think about a, a good amount of, of nat, nat gas players hedging at these price levels and then going into the preceding years. These are great prices. If you can hedge this or even close to this, that's huge. But production will follow. I mean, if you're a producer in Haynesville or in the Marcellus and you are private, you um, you should be drilling like crazy and producing like crazy and capitalizing this. And you should absolutely be hedging. But I think there's also, you know, we're starting to hear more talk about that. And we're also hearing some fears out of, you know, in this OPEC disagreements, I did hear some stuff about some fears about, you know, prices letting, you know, they keep saying the same thing over and over. They're like, well, we have to monitor this so U.S. shale doesn't come back. And I thought, you know, they're kind of just getting lucky and banking on all these, all the issue and investor pressure and the, you know, the public's being restrained, but that's what they're banking on, right? Is that the U.S. is going to be withheld, but it's prices, you know, that's, if that was not an issue, prices alone would be incentive, are incentivizing production to come up in the U.S. And the same, I mean, that, that goes for gas. And that's something that folks are probably going to miss because again, production, because the data lags two months, it's not right in front of your face. It's not completely transparent. And so if production starts creeping up, I mean, you get a monthly EIA number where production is up, that tends to actually move the market. So it's been flat. And so it works well with this whole narrative. Yeah. And on hedging, the forward strip, I mean, we are in basically in backwardation without some some midwinter peaks. But gas for 22 is at three bucks, which is still very attractive relative to where we were yep. the past couple of years. I mean, years, and we're, so. we're, we're seeing the same backwardation in crude oil. I mean, I'm not a huge... You know, I always tell people that you can look at the CME group future prices and that's that tells you what people think the future market is going to be today. But tomorrow, their outlook is going to change. But the fact that we are backward dated, you know, we've been consistently backward dated, both in, I, I believe, in gas and in oil is telling you something um, that's telling you that, you know, folks think the price is going to come down and that at least right now. Um, and that should tell you something about the market. But I want to rewind a little bit in terms of the, so the data that came out in the US from the, you know, from the demand side. So in addition to, you know, we're talking about all this, this production stuff, but from the demand side in the US, it was pretty huge. I mean, and that's, that's helped support this, this little, you know, price rally that we've seen, but it was, I mean, 
gasoline demand is over uh, is over 10 million barrels per day. So we are at the we are at pre-COVID levels. Overall, we're 21 million barrels per day of product demand, 21.6 million barrels per day nearly. That's huge amount. I mean, we're, we're above the pre, we're basically recovered from COVID in, in the US. So when you look at the IEA and you look at these other numbers and they say, oh, next quarter, and even guys on banks, Bloomberg and CNBC, we're going to be at you know, pre-COVID levels globally next quarter, next year. We may be closer to that now, and that's partly why the you know price you know folks are thinking things are going to be tight. But I mean, gasoline was we're over ten million barrels per day. That was a near nearly um, we were nine point one, uh, basically nine point two million barrels per day the previous week. So we had a massive jump up in in demand for gasoline over the the summer holiday, and then we've had uh, distillates. I mean, everything demand is up for everything across the board. So that's pretty huge, and I think that color and transparency is driving the market. And we also had refineries are running flat out or not flat out. I'd say refineries are running higher at a efficiency than and utilization than they were. Overall, US is now total is at 86% for utilization for refineries, which is huge because in just November, we were at 79% um, by comparison. So that's pretty big. And if you look at like California or Pad 5, we're almost 83% utilization. So, and rewind that to November of last year, that was only 75%. So refineries are running, you know, everybody's sort of going full steam and recovering. And I, I do think the market, because we do have this transparent liquid market and we have the data, I think people look at it and kind of extrapolate that forward. But I mean, we're importing, so we're importing 5.8 million barrels per day, roughly about the same that we were importing over the last several months. So, and we're exporting, you know, our exports have dropped a little, but we're still around three, over 3 million barrels per day for exports. So, I mean, it's not like things have dramatically, you know, shifted in one direction or the other. So what do you think the impact is on the companies themselves where you've got private companies that are producing more and, you know, deploying more rigs and, and the public companies, well, generally speaking, are, are still trying to live within free cash flow and generate positive free cash flow and aren't as aggressive. Do you think we're going to see more M&A long term uh, or do we think IPOs? Um, is the market ready for that? What, what do you think the end game is? If I was advising private companies, I would say selling would be smart because that's no longer yours and you can get the money now. But IPOing is not smart because the regulatory burdens from the financial, I mean, the, fi- the regulatory burdens uh, from being public alone are going to be are going to grow under this administration and are. I mean, in the executive order that, that Biden was talking about today, I was kind of shocked to hear folks on Bloomberg r- ripping him, like calling out, you know, pretty uh, the pretty far left folks within the administration um, and they actually calling out Columbia University, saying a lot of them came from Columbia University and that, you know, the market could take a real, this could be the correction for the overall stock market um, that folks are looking for because this administration is looking to really change the competitive landscape. And we've seen that in a couple executive orders that we talked about with regards to oil and gas. But I do think it's something people, you know, when you're trying to regulate um, for oil and gas, if you're trying to regulate on emissions, and it's not just the the administration, this is the shareholders of, you know, Chevron saying you need to be targeting scope three emissions or end user emissions. It's impossible to do. So, but that alone is an incentive to not go public because the burdens on you from from an ESG and regulatory standpoint, are going to be are going to be huge. I mean, they're going to be very, very real. So you're better off to maintain being, you know, private and making all this money now. And yeah, if you get bought out, great, you know. But I'm not sure that the publics are going to be able to do big buyouts either, given all this pressure they're seeing on the financial side. So I think you could be at this sort of status quo. If anything, you actually may see companies try. They should. They, you know, people aren't always rational. But if anything, you should see companies trying to go private. 
um, which would be difficult to actually maneuver some of that. But if you're private, stay private. I mean, there's no benefit to being public uh, other than you get this massive windfall and folks get rich. But most of these companies, I'm talking Endeavor, CrowdQuest, I'm imagining people at the top have already made a crap load of money. So, you know, it, how much more do you really need? Um, that's all I'm saying. Well, I, never I, I never enough. Pri- I, you could merge yeah. together. I, I think it'd be better to see Endeavor and CrowdQuest merge to be a massive private company. Personally, I think the, the, the U.S. and you know, the, we would be better off having a nice balance of private and public companies so that the pu- public ones are not, you know, subjected to every regulatory swing that we're seeing, you know, th- this pressure from administration in the financial side. I think uh, it, it's just healthy to have this balance. But we're going to see if, if over half those rigs are private, we're going to see some production. I mean, we're just not. And, and it's not like the publics are declining. It's not like the publics are saying we're going to reduce output. You know, they're maintaining this you know, single digit to, you know, what single digit to 10% increases in production. So look, if you're doing that alone, if they're growing a little bit, and then the privates are growing a lot bit, I don't see how production will stay at 11 million barrels a day forever. Yeah, I think the backwardated tape makes it tougher to do deals here, where you've Mm -hmm. got sellers who have expectations of $100 oil oil that they want to put in their sell side price deck and the, you know, Brent futures are at $60 in the out year. I don't think that makes it easy to execute deals. Um, but with respect to to doing something, these private equity backed companies, they either have to IPO or they have to sell. So Yeah, they, they do, yeah. but they're also, I mean, you know, I've actually appreciated listening to some of these, you know, various podcasts and stuff of the, the, you know, like how private equity, basically they need, you know, the folks that are back and they want a piece of energy in their portfolio. I do think that increasingly we're seeing more, folks who want a piece of oil and gas in their portfolio. And so that is helping, I think, a little bit on, on the private equity side. And I don't think that, you know, if you're surviving, there's a mentality of a bit of the surviving and you're more than surviving now. You may, you may, you're looking at exit strategy, whatever that may be. But I would say that if you're, you, there's no reason that a private company can't, you know, a actual private company can't go buy another, you know, in, in some ways, these private equity guys should be looking at it like that. It, it, you know, in the beginning, private equity was, we buy and flip and we do that and we get out. And, you know, increasingly, they had to start looking at a more longer term, what if we run this asset? And I think if you're looking at what if we run this asset, you can make money in $75 oil. This, what's just, it's driving me a little bit bananas that, you know, we have this, we listen to the Saudi oil minister, we have this narrative of like, yeah, we're going to kind of, Basically, they were comfortable at 60. Now they're comfortable at 70. They're going to be comfortable at 80. And they want to kind of ratchet this up. That's their fiscal break even, folks. They want higher oil prices. But what they're not paying attention to is not just U.S. production, but global production creeping up with it. And they're not paying attention to the fact that they could be hurting. At some point, you'll start hurting demand. And I keep telling people, but we have not had inflation, you know, and transitory, my ass. Um, you know, we have not had inflation at these levels and high oil prices together. So eventually, when people are off the unemployment benefits and the money starts stop pulling in with checks into people's homes, when they feel high, when they feel four dollar gasoline and they're going to work, they're going to feel inflation. They're going to feel higher oil prices in a different way than when in years past when they had a hundred dollar oil and they didn't have inflation. And it's got, people are going to start feeling it, and that could that could have an impact on on GDP growth levels. Okay, so we've hit on the U.S. Do you have anything else you want to talk about in the U.S. or do you want to move abroad? Um, well, this is in the U.S., but yes, I think we can move abroad. Obviously, this is we'll be we'll continue to. Okay, talk it's all, on all to the, the inextricable link between imported goods from China and human rights. So yes, and- the Biden administration uh, made an interesting 
announcement vis-a-vis the Border Patrol about solar panel imports from Xinjiang. Yeah, and you had to basically you had to basically be listening to. So there's a few shout outs to these podcasts. South China Morning Post has a, a couple polit- a couple uh, podcasts, and one of them is the China Geopolitics podcast. I think I've referenced awesome podcast, very nerdy in the weeds on China. There's another really good one called China in Africa. But you have to really pro- be following some deep nerd stuff and chasing it up to put this up. And I I think we are going to be the first podcast on this, and I, I I'm going to make Ethan promote the crap out of this because. I heard something when I was listening to these podcasts and I had, you know, they were talking basically the U.S. Customs and Border Protection issued, it says the Department of Homeland Security issues with uh, issues withhold release order on silica based products made by forced labor in Xinjiang. So one, we have the administration admitting that we have forced labor in Xinjiang. Now, the thing that I've had, so I, I will give credit where credit is due. I am glad that the administration is taking a stance and by knowing they're taking a stance on solar in Xinjiang, which is a pretty big deal. But when you peel it back, like we should say, and truthfully, we should say no solar panels, nothing from Xinjiang, no t-shirts and no solar panels, nothing. Because if you've done the research like I have, literally type in Xinjiang into your podcast on your, on your iPhone or whatever, listen to all these podcasts. It is, it's, it's beyond damning. I mean, this is no, when you listen to Bloomberg and they say alleged human rights abuses, they're not alleged folks. Okay. We're talking about tens of thousands of Uyghurs, if not hundreds of thousands. And it's modern day, very, very, very bad stuff. But the point is, is that there's several of these reports from Amnesty International and others that have done some very granular research and interviews with folks that have been in these camps. And even the New York Times, New York Times has, has said, um, it's a, they, they know of 120 factories that are attached to these educate re-education facilities. So at the very least, I mean, 120 factories attached to this in Xinjiang. And then the other reports that I've dove into are that this labor is being exported. So people are on taking Uyghurs are being put on buses in Xinjiang and being sent all over the country of China. So you cannot say that a solar panel from Xinjiang is, is the way to solve this because there's lots of forced labor outside of Xinjiang. And it's China anyway, like we're supporting a government that does forced labor and human rights abuses in Xinjiang. It, the idea that we're doing this in the first place is ridiculous. But so the administration did do this order. They basically said they basically targeted a, a company. A ma- they targeted a major company and said, we're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to basically get silica based products from this company. Now, that's a single company. I'm sure things will be added, but we have multiple companies making polysilicon in in Xinjiang, right? That that's happening um, as we speak. But we also get our solar panels from other places. You know, they could end up going through Vietnam and other places. So there's ways for China to get around this. And I assume that that's why part of this wasn't super enforced, because basically, if this administration wants to do their their net zero grid, you know, for electricity grid for 2030 or 2035, they have to have a massive amount of solar. And that solar is, at least at the moment, is going to come from China. And a lot of that's going to come from Xinjiang. So, you know, they can't back themselves into a wall completely. But the other really interesting, and this is where this is just super fascinating. So, um, okay, so you have these companies in Xinjiang, right? These solar companies. And so this South China Morning Post podcast, China Geopolitics, they're talking, they're mentioning this. And then they they say that they they bring up the story. And it's pretty amazing because they, um, no one's followed it. it there, there's a news thing. I sent it to Ethan. But um, they a guy was just nerding out and he was looking at SEC filings um, in the U.S. Doesn't he, he admits that he doesn't really even know what he's looking at. And he's looking at SEC filings in the U.S. and he sees, you know, he's looking up Xinjiang. He's looking at this this province with, with issues in China. And it's not just Xinjiang, it's Tibet as well. But he's looking up Xinjiang and he sees a few things. And he sees Vanguard, State Street and BlackRock a few times, you know, and set, he basically sets it aside and it gets back into it later. And he realizes that Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock have massive holdings, massive like holdings in entities of, you know, they're big 
we, we, the majority of Americans, we put a lot of money into Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock for these stable, you know, institutions and investments. So if you remember those names, you should remember them because those are, we mentioned those in previous podcasts when we're talking about Exxon and the board debacle and three seats that Exxon lost to engine number one. And three major names were touted in that was Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock, three big entities that took a knee um, to engine number one because they were, they were, they wanted engine number one. They, they said it was because of ESG, it was because of, you know, the environmental stuff. Well, ESG is not just environmental folks. It has a social and governance component. And it is fascinating to me that this is not broadcasted and shown everywhere that Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock have massive holdings in the province of Xinjiang and not just holdings, not just there have influences on boards. And apparently if you go through these SEC filings, which I'm going to, you can actually, they, they're basic alleged human rights abuses that they don't want to talk about. And so we've essentially allowed this to go on. And this guy in this podcast is explaining that, hey, you know, human rights are just not as big of an issue. You know, they just haven't been elevated to the status of climate change and of the environment. And I thought it's absolutely amazing because there is um, and I've done my research now and I, I really highly recommend I need to hold up the book, but it's upstairs. It's called China Goes Green and it's uh, it's about China's authoritarian um you know, their authoritarian environmentalism. And it's really, it's not a biased book. It's really about how just they implement their environmental measures. And I think that a lot of folks have just been sort of duped by, under, you know, thinking in, in this woman, Shapiro is one of the authors, and she wrote a previous book in years past where she was commending China on, on their environmental progress, you know, in pre-2012. But it's very, very different now. And she's changed her tune completely. I mean, she's basically said that, you know, this explaining how they enforce everything. And so you have to realize almost none of these measures in China, these very coercive environmental authoritarian programs that they have, which go all the way down to forced recycling, literally putting cameras on trash cans. And this is this is straight up research that I'm not making this stuff up. It sounds crazy, but they don't actually do things to necessarily benefit the environment. And um, it, it just it's fascinating to me that these companies, BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard are being touted and able to influence a board of Exxon on the on the backing and means of environmentalism and of reducing oil output and, and ESG concerns. And yet are you know heavily involved in the province of Xinjiang, where we have massive human rights abuses and forced labor, in addition to being powered, you know, by very, you know, intensive uh, coal and, and probably have major, major environmental issues. And a lot of the coal, uh, you know, a lot of the factories in China have been moved to Xinjiang and a lot of the intensive coal production is there as well to actually power this stuff. So it's all folded in together. And I am, um, I'm really excited that I got to connect with that. Interesting. So I haven't seen those filings, but uh, be very interesting to, and, and actually, you know, I'm just looking it up now, but if, if folks want to check that out for themselves, they can look at the South China Morning Post where they talk about huge mutual funds investing millions uh, in into Xinjiang. So, yeah, um, which is a, it's just a, it's just an issue in and of itself. And the more I've dove into it, the more this stuff is interconnected. So I will say, I think, actually, Ethan, this is a, our natural a natural stopping point. This is a first, ladies and gentlemen, where Trisha comes to a natural stopping point. But it's it's because I have to say something. So I have all this. Uh, so e- e- I've been drinking. No, out it's of my, too good to be true. I know. I've been drinking out of my new Petronard's mug, which Ethan will have one. So Ethan and I will get back together and do this in person together. But Ethan will have his mug for our next podcast. And I'm speaking. I'm not sure when this podcast is dropping because we may be changing the drop date. 
But um, I'm speaking at Doug next week. So I'm speaking at the um, Heart Energy Doug Conference, the Permian Basin Conference in uh, Fort Worth on, on Tuesday, July 13th. And I will have all this swag. I spent the money on these really nice vinyl permanent Petronard stickers. And I have new business cards. So I am pumped and ready um, and pumped for the Doug conference. And I'll be doing like a fireside chat and we will be talking about just uh, the, he's just, the guy's going to just be lobbing me. Len Vermillion with Heart Energy is going to be lobbing me with really hard uh, macro questions and micro questions. So I'm super pumped about it. Well, that's great. I'm sure people will enjoy your presentation as they always do. Well, thank you for listening, folks. Again, it's July 9th, 2021. This has been episode 21 of the Petronerds podcast. I'm Ethan Bellamy with Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petronerds. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time as well. Thank you, Ethan. Bye.